Anything? Did, did we learn from Ask Me Anything? I thought it was a, I thought it was a great... Um, a great series that we, we were in, but I'm super excited to get into this new series, Mind Games. I think we all know about them, I think we all play them, I think we're all subject to them. So I thought that we would start today off by playing some Mind Games. Who's up for a game? Cool. Okay, so I'm going to put some images on the screen, and then I'm going to ask you what you see. And I want you to, to respond to when I ask you the question by what you see first. Okay, so my mind game masters at the back, can you put up the first screen for us, please? Okay, take a few minutes and have a look. Some of you may have seen these before. Hands up who saw a beautiful girl first. Hands down. Hands up who saw the ugly woman first. Wow. Can you see the ugly woman now, those of you that... <laughs> okay, that's enough of that one. Okay, the next one is a listening one. Some of you may have heard this one around social media, but I want you to listen as this phrase is played a couple of times. Go ahead, boys. Yeah. 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 Okay, stop. Yeah. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> Who hears yummy? Who hears Laurel? <laughs> it is so saying yummy. Okay. <clears throat> Let's put the next one up. This is Luke shaving last night. <clears throat> this is church. Who sees an oily pair of legs? Who sees some white streaks of paint down some legs? And now you see the paint, you can't see the oily legs, right? Okay, throw up the next one. Who sees a brick wall? Oh, come on, you're absolutely fibbing if you can't see a brick wall. <laughs> Who can see the cigar that the brick wall is smoking? <laughs> Once you see it, you can't not see it. Three, two, one. Take it away. You'll have to come back to the six o'clock if you want to focus again tonight. <laughs> Should we do one more? Let's do one more. Throw up the shoe. Is it pink and white? Is it green and white? <laughs> Ooh. I'll go on, we'll carry on and do a couple more, just very quickly. Put the next one up. You've seen it, right, on social media. It is white and gold. Yes. Is it blue and black? 
you people. Okay, put the next one up. Have a look at this guy and tell me, is this guy looking at you or is he looking sideways? Is he looking at you? Is he looking sideways? Right, let's do one more. Last one. Who sees a rabbit? Who sees a duck? <laughs> Beth is actually drawing a duck out for, for Courtney on the front row here. What can't you see, Court? You can't see the rabbit. Is what, I'll just leave them. I'll just leave them. Yeah, okay. Perception. It's all about perception. You see what your mind allows you to believe. And according to how your mind interprets the image, it then feeds it back to you. And that is what you believe. And so we're going to be having a look throughout the duration of this series called Mind Games. Because mind games, I think, are, are something that is so huge to the human race. I mean, these are images that we've been looking at. But what about a conversation that somebody has with you and then you interpret it differently to how they meant it? And you go away with an attitude of, mm, is she being funny with me? No, she wasn't. Or what about when you see something on Instagram and two people are out celebrating somebody's birthday and your mind tells you they've just put it out there to wind you up? Or what about that in reverse? What about when you put an image up on Instagram as though it were one thing, but actually what you're doing is subliminally messaging to somebody else to get your point across. It's a mind game. And we are all subject to mind games. You know, the, the Bible has a lot to say on the mind. It has a lot to say about the way we think and the way that we perceive things to be. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he gave us some great advice in 2 Corinthians when he wrote this. Take captive... Every thought and make it obedient to Christ. In other words, what he's saying is that thought you have in your mind, you need to think in a moment, should I be thinking on that or not? Should I be thinking in that way or not? Is it wholesome? Is it good? Or is it not? You know, if ever you're going to take advice from someone, take advice from someone who has lived through the very thing they're advising you on. If you are going to take advice on losing weight and getting fit, take advice from someone who has lost the weight and has changed their lifestyle. If you're going to take advice on marriage, take advice from someone who's still going strong 15, 20 years into theirs. Well, this book, this writer of the book of Corinthians, Paul, he knew what it was to be imprisoned. He knew what it was to be beaten. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. He was shipwrecked. He was flogged. He was rejected. You know, so he knew what it was to have thoughts of worry and dread and fear and concern. So if he can write, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And I'm going to listen to him, because this guy knew what it was to battle against some seriously negative thoughts. So when he says, take that thought captive, even if that thought doesn't want to be held captive, you take control. 
In other words, what he's saying is take control about what you're thinking on. You take control. Nowhere does the Bible say that God is going to invade your thought life and take control for you. Nowhere does it say that God will will, um, be the sift that your thoughts go through and only good thoughts will come into your mind. You know, the Bible is instructing you. Paul didn't give us a suggestion. He gave us an instruction. Take captive every thought. You need to take control. You know, we can't always control what we think. We can't always control what comes into our mind. Have you ever had a thought pop into your mind? And you're like, where did that come from? Like, really random. Why am I even thinking that? Yesterday, I was making Solomon, our 12-year-old boy, I was making him a sandwich. And I said to him, Sol, what do you want on your sandwich? And he said, Mum, if my dad had worked at the co-op, would you still have married him? I'm there buttering the bread going, I married your dad for your dad. What do you want on your sandwich? Why are you even asking me this? I don't know. It just popped into my head. As adults, we get better about taking control of what we speak out. But it doesn't mean that we're still not thinking about random thoughts and wrong thoughts. So we, we, we need to take control. You know, sometimes our minds are like, it's like an open door for anything to come in. Can you imagine leaving the door of your house open? You wouldn't sleep easy at night, would you? Because it would be open for all sorts of undesirables to just come walking in. You would not know um, who would be in your lounge sleeping on your couch when you got up in the morning. There'd be people in your kitchen eating through your cupboards, helping themselves to anything. You would, all of a sudden, that home that is supposed to be your safe place has now become an unstable place and an uncertain place because you are not, you can't relax because you don't know who is in there. Well, your mind is the same. If you leave the door of your mind open, then Anything can just come in. Anything. Fear, worry, dread, anxiety, jealousy, greed, lust. They can just come in. Why? Because the door was left open. And once they are in there, they will take up squatters' rights. And it is hard to evict them. So Paul here is saying, you can't always control what pops into your mind. So let's take control of the thoughts once they are in there. And I want to show you in a very practical way today by taking one thought in particular and showing you through this one thought how we can take hold of it, take it captive and make it obedient to Christ. Okay. It is one thought that plagues the human race. It is one thought that we have all battled with, undoubtedly, at some time or another. Even some of us right now might be battling through this very thought. And if not now, there will be a day in our future when we will all be confronted with this thought. And the thought that I want to talk to you about is fear. Being afraid. Fear. We all fear something, some fear dying, some fear living. I don't know what tomorrow brings. It's a sense of dread. We fear being alone. 
We fear getting sick. We fear losing a loved one. We fear the redundancy. We're afraid of different things. We're afraid of the dark. We're afraid of spiders. We're afraid of clowns. What is it with the clowns? We're afraid of clowns. But we all deal with this thought, this mindset of fear. Fear can come in as a tiny thought and very quickly grow into a huge, scary size. And when it grows, it dominates your life and actually it dominates your, your mind and it debilitates your life. When I was a little girl, I was given a doll. And this doll was huge. It was the same size as me. I was not a huge child. <laughs> I was five years old and I was given a doll that was the same size as me. And I was not a dolly type of girl. I didn't like dolls. I'm kind of glad I had three boys and I've not had to do the whole doll thing in my house. But I was given this doll as a gift and so, you know, it was put in my bedroom and my mum thought the best place for it to be, because it was so huge, was on top of the wardrobe, which made it look even more huge. And there she sat like this. Yeah, my very own Chucky, on top of the wardrobe. But this doll, wherever I went, it was watching me. Anybody else have a toy like that? If I was by the bed over here, she was looking at me. But if I went to the window over here, it was as though she moved her head because her eyes were still looking at me. But I kid you not, at five years old, this doll brought such a sense of fear into my life. I began to have nightmares. I began to have night sweats. I couldn't get out of bed to go to the bathroom. I would almost stop breathing to the point where my parents eventually got onto the fact that it was the doll and they had to get the doll out of the house. However, fear just doesn't stop there when the item is removed, when the thing is removed, because it's something that gets a grip of you. Do you know why? It's because fear is not a feeling. Fear is a spirit. And we know this because in 2 Timothy it says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but one of power and of a sound mind. Your mind is not meant to be in torment. You should be happy and comfortable with your own thoughts. You should be okay with being by yourself because your mind and your thoughts should be a sound place. You know, medication is given, is administered to combat a physical problem, okay? So if, for example, you are an allergy sufferer, Let's say you are allergic to dogs, or you're allergic to dust, or a hay fever sufferer. The minute those symptoms begin, you need to take an antihistamine. And the antihistamine is the antidote to, to counteract the effects of the problem. You know, if, if you don't take the antihistamine straight away, very, very quickly, your symptoms can rage out of control. But when you take the antidote, it calms down the itchy skin, it stops the itchy eyes, it stops the streaming nose, it, is a count it counteracts, it's an antidote. It comes against the problem. A couple of years ago, when the girls went away to Cherish, 
Luke took our boys down to London with Sean Johnson and his boys, and they were having a great time. And I'd said, you know, Sol has hay fever. Yeah, but we're in the city. We'll be fine. Until they went through a walk through Hyde Park. And I'm sitting at a conference, and I get this photograph sent to my phone. <laughs> this is dad duty. Should I give him an antihistamine? I thought he'd been run over by a truck. <laughs> I'm like, seriously? You should have given him an antihistamine on the first sneeze. You should have got in there and combated that problem. Very, very quickly, things blow up out of control. Your eyes swell, you can't see, you can't breathe. Well, God being God, he knew, the, God being so brilliantly God, he knew the very thing that, our, that as, us as humans would battle against. He knew how our minds work. And he knew that when fear gets into your mind, it is going to take root. Therefore, he has given you the perfect antidote that you don't start taking when your life is spiraling out of control, but you begin to take the antidote the moment that your mind begins to feel trouble. It will give your faith life, life a, boost, a boost, just like an antihistamine gives your physical health a boost. Okay, here's the antidote, 1 John 4:18. There is no fear in love. Because perfect love casts out all fear. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out all fear. So when we pray, guys, we do not pray for the fear to leave we open up our hearts and our minds for the perfect love of Christ to fill our lives because it is the antidote to the problem. It's a prescribed antidote. It's a guarantee to work. We live in a world where the word love has very little grit or meaning. A man can say he loves his wife and with the same breath say he loves a good curry with the lads. The word love just has very little connotation. It, it doesn't mean a great deal. We say we love the dog. We say we love the car. We say we love the job. And we say we love the kids. All in one mouthful. So we don't fully understand. But the truth is, this generation does not understand the true definition of love. Because love is not something that God gives, but love is who he is. It is who God is, and it is not a wishy-washy Valentine sitting on a cloud, plunking on a harp type of love that the world can understand. This love is a powerful force to be reckoned with. And I kid you not, when you flood your life with the love of God, the enemy runs on his heels because he cannot be where perfect love is because perfect love casts out all fear. You know, I'm really dobbing on Solomon today, but he's um, at the age now where I have to tell him if I'm going to use stories about him, I have to tell him or forewarn him. And so he's really getting it good today. But several years ago, when he was around about the age of five or six, he began to really suffer with anxiety. I don't know where it came from. He's brought up in a really stable home. There was no rhyme, no reason. He'd had no tragedy in his life. We, we couldn't understand it. But it began where he couldn't go to bed at night. And he would wake up and fast breathe. And he'd be standing over the toilet 
um, imitating as though he was being sick all of the time. He'd be sweating. We'd be putting him to bed. Going to bed was a nightmare. He was up and he was down. He was violently shaking. He was crying. And this kind of went on and on and on for, a, for quite a few months. And then in the summer, we were going away to America. And we boarded the plane. And um, we're all on the plane. And already in the queue before we got on the plane, he'd started with his anxiety. He'd started fast breathing and feeling hot and feeling bothered. And we were like, it's fine. We're going to be taking off soon. And we got on that plane and we all got strapped in. And his anxiety hit an all-time high. I mean, the kid, I thought he was having a heart attack. He, and at five years old, it, it's... Is such an awful thing to see. And as a parent, you're like, I don't know what to do. He's freaking out. Then he started to actually be sick. He's sweating. He's shaking. The plane will not take off because he's in this state. Now we've got the stress of the other passengers. And, and we began, Luke began to just pull his clothes off him because just trying to cool him down. And the air hostesses were around and everybody is trying to sort this problem out. I mean, he was violently out of control and I just can remember just as Luke was pulling the clothes off him just telling the air hostesses we'll be fine we'll be fine just leave me on my own with him leave me on my own with him there was a song what Solomon used to have playing continuously in his bedroom of a night um, from the age literally from being born right up to the age of three or four and any of you old school Christians will know how great is our God how great, sing with me, how great is our God. Talks about the love of God, talks about the power of God. And I just held that child tight in my arms and I put my head, my mouth on his head and I began to sing, how great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. And all the world will know how great, how great is our God. And I sang it over him and I sang it over him. Why? Because in and of myself as a mother, I could do nothing to sort this out or calm it down. And I knew that fear had a grip of him. And so you know what we did? We sang the antidote of God into his life. And it was night and day. He literally snapped out of that as quickly as we went into it. You see, uh, we fear when we don't know it's going to be okay. That's what makes us fear. It's when we're unsure of how it's all going to be. And I often think of the story in Matthew 8. It's where Jesus is going across Lake Galilee with the disciples in the boat. Jesus had just had this awesome time of ministry on the shore side. And now he says to his disciples that night, let's get into the boat and let's go across to the other side. So they get into the boat and they're going across and Lake Galilee is more actually like a sea because you can't see the other side. And um, it's more, more like an ocean than it is what we perceive as a lake. So they're in the boat and they're going across and it's late at night. And then it says all of a sudden, unexpected, out of nowhere, a storm hit. I don't know if you know what that's like in life to just be going along with your life. I mean, these boys were a follower of Christ. They'd given up their everything to follow Christ. I don't know if you know what it's like just being a Christian, just doing the right thing and living the right way, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, unexpected, unpredicted, this storm hits. And it wasn't just a few waves and a bit of wind. It was a storm that was threatening their very lives. It was bashing against the boat. They were in fear that they were going to be sinking. And they run to find Jesus, who, by the way, had fallen asleep 
wouldn't you know? And I don't know if you ever know what that experience is like either, that you are going through the biggest storm of your life and it feels like God has gone to sleep. I'm praying. You know, anxiety is an all-time high. I can't breathe. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I'm freaking out of my mind here. And I'm praying to God and it feels like heaven has just gone silent. There is nothing. But the truth is this. You feel like heaven has gone silent because of your doubt. Because the problem is, when life is going good and when life is going great and when, when everything is, is on par with you, you have no problem believing in the goodness of God. You have no problem feeling and experiencing the love of God. You're shouting about the power of God. But when that unexpected storm hits and the problems come crashing down, doubt comes in first. And that doubt, it, it anesthetizes you. It numbs you from feeling as though God were close or present. And the disciples in this scenario, they do what any of us would have done if we were in that boat. They run over to Jesus and they're like, wake up. They were probably like ragging him, wake up. Don't you know what's happening to us? Don't you know we're about to die? Don't you care? And, and we so often feel like that in our times of stress and our times of anxiety. It's like, God, God. Don't you even care? I'm a faithful follower. Don't you care that my life is falling apart? Since in their panic, Jesus wakes up. And I love the way he responds to them because he responds by addressing them before he speaks to the storm. He responds by speaking to the inner storm before he speaks to the outer storm. And in Matthew 8, 26, he says to them, he opens his eyes and he says, oh, you of little faith. And then he asks them a question. He says to them, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and then he rebuked the wind and the waves and it became completely calm because that's the one thing that I love about our God so much is that when he gets involved in your situation, it doesn't get a little bit calmer. He doesn't bring a sense of calm it becomes completely calm. Notice that Jesus never asked them, what are you afraid of? Because the what is not his concern. He is not concerned what you are afraid of, whether that be a financial battle, a health battle, or a clown battle. He is not bothered with the what. He's not concerned over the what, but he says to them, why are you afraid. Why? He was saying to the disciples, in light of me being here with you, why are you afraid? In light of my presence being here, why are you afraid? So, you know, it is interesting to me how it's relationship that breeds trust. You wouldn't go up to a perfect stranger with your kids and say, could you mind them for a few hours? Because you don't know them, so you don't trust them. But when you get to know somebody, there is a level of trust, and you trust them with, the, with that which is most precious to you. And so I have a question to ask that I want you to answer yourself today. And the question is this, how close are you to Jesus? 
How close are you to Jesus? Because we only lack confidence in someone we don't trust. And the only reason we don't trust is because we don't know them like we think we know them. Okay, the best example of that for me is Instagram. How many people do you follow on Instagram that you think you know? You know where they live, you know what gym they go to, you know what food they eat, you know what car they drive, you know all about them, but you've never actually met them, therefore you don't know them. Luke and I were down on the, the southeast coast of England earlier this week, and um, we'd gone down there to meet with some pastor friends of ours, and we were going to a meeting at their church, first of all, and we drove up in the car park, and as there was multiple cars pulling up, and as we got out of the car, there's this, this, this guy, this lad, larger than life, and uh, he's, he's there in, in, the, in the car park, and we get out, and he goes, Luke, Emma, so good to see you. And I was like, okay, he got the memo, we were coming, that's great, wonder how he knew what car we were driving. And, uh, but then what he said to me next blew me away. He said, how's Gracie? <laughs> Gracie's my dog, okay. I said, she's getting fatter, but she's fine. She's okay. And then he says, I love your house. It's the crazy house. Then my head starts going, has he been to stay at our house? And I didn't know, because this happens all the time, by the way. There are always people staying over at our house, most of them from the church, or more to the point, always lads staying over at our house. Most of them from this church, but it has been known up and down the country, different people just find themselves in our house. And, um, and uh, take a couple of Sundays ago, Solomon, our 12-year-old who's drumming today, was drumming a couple of weeks ago. And when he's drumming, Luke leaves super early with him. And Joe Ash was on something, and Isaac was on something. So he left, he left, they left, they all went. And I'm in my bedroom, and I breathe, because I'm like, I'm in the house on my own now. I walked out my bedroom as Devon walked out the bathroom. <laughs> like, we collided on the landing. I screamed, he screamed. I'm like, why are you screaming? It's my house. But... So my point is this, there's always people and I don't always know who is even in the house. So I'm looking at this lad thinking, oh my goodness, have you been to stay at our house now? I've never even met you. Then he's like, oh, I just love it when the footballs aren't. Oh, he talked forever. Never met him in my life. He knew me off Instagram. So he knew all about me and all about my crazy life. But he didn't know me. He's never met me. Some of us, we have that same relationship with Jesus. We come to church week in, week out. We read our Bibles. We know all about him. We could tell you all the points, all the facts. We could even go as far as telling you what Jesus likes, what Jesus doesn't like, you know, what pleases God and what discipline. We know all the information. But the truth is, we don't know him like really know him. Jesus doesn't want to fill you with information. He wants to have a relationship with you. So I have another question, and that is, how do I make the switch from knowing about God to being in relationship with him? And the best way that I can describe it is just to take you to a couple of scriptures. Okay. Isaiah 26 says this. 
You will keep in perfect peace. You will keep in perfect peace. Who will he keep in perfect peace? Everyone? Will he keep everyone who comes to church in perfect peace? Because who wants to be in perfect peace? I do. Will he keep everyone who um, is good in perfect peace or everyone who just reads the Bible? No, 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 no. Watch this. All who trust in you and all whose thoughts are fixed on you. You want perfect peace in your life? He will keep you in perfect peace. All who trust in you and all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Thoughts fixed on him are thoughts that are held captive, okay? When we can fix our thoughts on him, it means that we have held captive. That I can probably best describe it to you like this. When I married Luke, I entered into a contract with him, okay? It was a, it was a, a, a binding relationship. When we got married, and as our relationship has gone on and on, you see, when you first get married, you... You no longer think as a single person, you think in the realm of a couple. And so if somebody were to ask me a question, ask me what I want, I would have to think, is that what Luke would want? Is that suiting to him too? And as we go on in our relationship, the funny thing is about relationship, you begin to morph into each other. And so I kind of, I do my food shopping, but I shop according to what I know that he likes. If somebody asks me a question, I don't have to run back and ask him because the two have become one and I just understand. I know what would be pleasing to him. I know what's displeasing to him. I know what he likes to eat, dislikes to eat because I am in a relationship with him. Well, I also entered into a relationship with Christ the day I got saved and it was a covenant relationship. And that relationship looks exactly the same that as I go through my life. I don't just think about Emma and make choices and decisions based on what Emma feels like and based on what Emma wants. I'm mindful of Christ in every sphere of my life. The problem is that so often we treat Jesus like the lucky rabbit's foot. We come to church on a Sunday, we do the right thing, but then we go off through the week, we live how we want, we do what we want, we choose the direction of our life, but then we pull God out the bag like the lucky rabbit's foot when a crisis hits your world and you are in trouble. That is not relationship, that is you using God. It's not relationship. And God wants relationship. And when you include him in every sphere of your life and the decisions that you make and the conversations that you have, and you're thinking, is the way that I'm speaking right? It is, what I'm, is what I'm meditating on right? Are the decisions that I'm making, are they God-honoring? Fear comes when we dwell on the wrong thoughts. You know, the thoughts will come in, but when you dwell on them, they drop down deep. And then we pray panic prayers and desperate prayers. But those whose thoughts are on you are kept in perfect peace. Can I just throw this in? Fear has an appetite, a vicious appetite, so don't feed it. Don't be entertained by fear, but also do not, do not entertain fear, but also do not be entertained by fear. And by that I mean some of us, we choose foolishly, you know, um, we, we, we choose foolishly, and uh, probably the most common talked about story from the platform is Luke's flying experiences. It's the thing that we re refer back to all of the time. The fact that he's never liked flying, but he got on with it, it was okay. And then all of a sudden, about four years ago, he just developed this sheer anxiety about flying, and now he hates flying, and we've had to work through some stuff. 
and um, I have no sympathy for him whatsoever because there was a point in his life when even though he did not like flying, he chose to watch on Netflix back-to-back air crash investigation and filled his head. He allowed himself to be entertained by fear. So I'm like, you get on, you can shake and wobble all you like. I'm singing no faith songs over you on the plane. You can just cope because you fed it yourself. And, um, but we do it all the time. You young people, you're the worst for it. Somebody says to you, oh, I watched this movie. It was terrifying. Didn't sleep all week. And you go home and you look for it on Netflix. And then you watch it. But when you do that, you open a door. You open a door for fear to come in because fear is not a feeling. Fear is not a movie that you watch. Fear is a spirit and it is looking to latch on to your life. And when it latches on into your mind, it is difficult to get rid of. Right now, our children in schools are battling with this thing called the Momo image. It is a Social media, it's, it's on WhatsApp, it's putting suicidal thoughts into our young children and it gets me mad because the enemy comes to steal, to kill and destroy and he's after our children and we have a responsibility in the church, we have a responsibility as parents to counteract it with the love of God, with the love of God. Fear wants to rob your thoughts and it wants to rob your peace. But you get to choose what goes and you get to choose what stays. Take thought, Eric, captive every thought and submit it to God. Is it right for me to think about this? Is it right for me to watch this? Is it right for me? Because if you don't hold captive every thought and submit it to God, then you are going to start to entertain thoughts that are sent to destroy you. Jesus has to be the filter that everything goes through. In John 14, when Jesus went back up to heaven, his body was going up to heaven, but he said, I'm going to leave you a gift on the earth. And this is what the gift is, John 14. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and peace of heart. Can I just tell you, peace is not the absence of problems. Peace is the presence of someone in your problems. He says, he went on to say, I do not give peace as the world gives because he's the deal. The world has tried to rip you off for years. The world has told you peace is when the kids go to bed. Peace is when you've got money in the bank. Peace is sitting on a beach under blue skies and sand under your feet. Peace is when you've got the new car. Peace is when you've got a great relationship. That's what the world has tried to rip you off, but it is a counterfeit because peace is not a something. There are plenty of people that have all of those things and still do not have peace because peace is not a something. It is a someone. And this peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled and don't be afraid. When you are in relationship with God, He will give you peace that transcends all understanding. Roughly translated, that means your friends will look at you and say things like, how are you still standing? How are you still going? How are you coping? You should have hit the bottle. You should have turned to drugs. The amount of people that told me when I was going through my illness, you should be in bed. You should look sick. 
It's like, but when the peace of God transcends all understanding, what is on the inside is going to radiate on the outside. Even though your world might be collapsing on the outside, the God of peace can dwell on the inside. So in closing, church, when Paul says, take captive every thought, what he is in fact saying is the battle is won or lost in your mind first. 